podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The South African government were very worried about Basil de Oliveira. He was living batting proof that their ideology wasn't right. I mean, how can a non-white man from Cape Town with no advantages rise up, immigrate to the mother country, late in life, and then come back home to embarrass them in cricket? If you're trying to sell the lie, the last thing you want is the truth standing out on the ground, slashing the ball through covers. And not any ground, but probably a ground he once had to watch from a tree outside or sit in a cage. It would be embarrassing. It would be silly. But that would never happen. There was no way the South African government were ever going to allow that. They had tried to stop Dolavira from making himself available. When that didn't work, they went to work on convincing the MCC not to pick him. Part of that was them getting as much information on him as possible. The South African government surveilled his every move. And by South African government, we're not talking some lowly clerk or officious middle management person. This information was being passed straight to BJ Vorster, the South African Prime Minister. Think about this. In early 1968, there was a lot going on in the world. Vietnam War, Black Power Olympians, Martin Luther King assassination, man walking on the moon, and the USSR invading the Czech Republic. And the leader of a country that was in a geopolitical turmoil, suffering from trade sanctions, was getting daily updates on how Derbyshire's bowlers had gone up against Worcestershire's star batsmen. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. I am Jared Kimber. This is the last episode of Season 2, the completion of our series on race and Basil D'Oliveira. Cricket was already pretty far behind other sports when it came to South Africa. In 1964, FIFA kicked them out, the same year that the Olympics did as well. In 1966, New Zealand rugby stopped playing them when South Africans wouldn't play against Maori players. It's slightly more complex than that, as in 81, South Africa toured New Zealand for rugby. But it was also 1964 that the last time New Zealand had played against South Africa in cricket. But South Africa had also won the 1974 Davis Cup when the Indian team refused to play them in the final. And South African golfer Gary Player won three majors in the 1970s as well. It wasn't like there weren't voices inside cricket suggesting that people shouldn't play South Africa, but they usually came from Asia or the West Indies. And remember, the ICC was formed by three nations, England, Australia, and South Africa. Essentially, voting them out of their own club was going to be very hard. This was the Imperial Cricket Conference that was now the International Cricket Council. Kicking out a founding nation would have been a huge deal, especially without the prevailing wins. Now, you might think that with the other sports kicking them out, that those wins were there. But cricket wasn't run professionally. It was run as a private members organisation, and often by conservative people who may not have believed in apartheid, but they certainly weren't so against the concept that they'd want to kick out a friend. And if you want to know how much they were willing to bend the rules, South Africa left the Commonwealth in 1961. That actually meant that they were ineligible to play test cricket. But England, Australia and New Zealand voted to let them in. I mean, these people had excellent treatment from South Africa cricket when they toured there. And if you think that was a silly thing to say, that was the kind of thinking at times that was prevalent. There was also an idea within English cricket that picking Dolavira would cause a scene. Yes, I know, I'm aware, again, this sounds ridiculous. But there was a dinner party decorum to cricket. And why would you tour South Africa with an uninvited guest? All of this was just a backdrop to the selection meeting to pick the squad. There were up to 10 people in the selection meeting and no notes were taken, or if they were, they were destroyed or burned. Another kind of ashes, I suppose. According to the Rich Evans piece on the event, 
The four test selectors, Doug Insult, Alec Bedser, Don Kenyon, and Peter May, were joined by a tour manager, Les Ames, skipper Colin Cowdery, NCC President Arthur Gilligan, Treasurer Gubby Allen, and Secretary Billy Griffith, and Assistant Secretary Donald Carr. There were people in that room of vastly different political backgrounds, some incredibly far-right, some centrist, but the truth is that no one in that room showed support for Dolavira. Even Cowdery, who had told Dolavira directly that he would support him, did not. The word is from everyone who went in that meeting that the politics weren't talked about. But let's be honest, the politics were there whether they were talked about or not. You could not ignore them by this point. But let's look at the cricket for a moment and have a look at the batting spots. Dolavira wouldn't open, so those spots are gone. The middle order already had Cowdery, Tom Graveney and Ken Barrington. Meaning that essentially Dolavira was fighting against two players, Keith Fletcher and Tom Cartwright. Fletcher had scored over 18,000 runs in the county season, although only at an average of 40, but was also far younger than Dolavira's stated age and probably even more so than his real one. And age is important, as England were an old team. Graveney and Cowdery and Barrington were not fit active fielders. It's also worth noting that Fletcher would become an English captain, so he was already highly thought of. But he had made his debut against Australia in that 68 series. He missed three catches, made a duck, and then was dropped. So he'd played one test, averaged 40 in first-class cricket, and Dolavira was averaging 48 in test cricket at that time. You add Dolavira's bowling, weigh up Fletcher's age and form, and that could still go either way. Though how often does it not go the way of a test batsman with an average of 48 who can bowl a bit? Tom Cartwright was a completely different kind of cricketer. He was a legendary medium pacer in county cricket. He took 1,596 first-class wickets at an average of 19. And he could bat. He made seven first-class hundreds, but from almost 500 games, and he averaged 21 with the bat. He was probably a first-class number seven or eight, and at test cricket, you'd have to be mad to think he was going to have an impact with the bat, other than a plucky innings from nine every now and again. And I gave you Cartwright's first-class bowling stats, but I didn't mention how he went at test level. In his five previous tests, he'd averaged 36. Now, five is not a lot, but it is perhaps a sign that his first-class mastery in the UK didn't quite transfer to tests. And if you look at his 1964-65 tour of South Africa, you get a better idea of how useful he might have been there with the ball. He took 25 wickets at 33 in first-class games on that tour, which is okay, but when you consider his overall record, it suggests that his skills were just suited to the UK in a way that they weren't to South Africa. Also on that trip, he did play one test, where he took two for 198. So remember that I said his career average was 36. At home, it was 26 in test matches. And this one test match away boosted it all the way to 36. But in county cricket in 1968, Tom Cartwright was incredible with the ball. He took 71 wickets at 16. Oh, that year, Basil D'Oliveira took 58 wickets at 15. They were both medium paces. Clearly, Cartwright was more frontline. But even then, he only took three wickets a match. That's really low for someone who averages 19 with the ball. To me, it looks like Cartwright was unplayable in conditions that favoured him and probably didn't bowl that much outside of them, making him an odd choice for South Africa, even if he was clearly a better bowler than Dolavira. But what really confused me was that they thought that Cartwright would work there and that somehow Dolavira wasn't seen as an all-rounder anymore. Now, at this point, I think we need to talk about cricket writing. Because I am a cricket writer, and I've also spent a lot of time looking back at old cricket writing. A very prominent cricket journalist told me once that most cricket writing is news-based. Who is the next to be dropped? Will the coach be fired? What scandal has the team or board got themselves in now? Who is potentially the next great player? What does this mean for the next Ashes? 
and you won't believe what a current or former player has just said. There is very little actual writing about cricket. I know one international team used to refer to questions about tactics and decisions on the field as Crick Info questions. But through T20, Crick Info, Crick Buzz, and social media, cricket writing is changing. It is becoming more about the game and less about the news agenda. Also, the technology has changed so much. Think about the analysis I just did on Cartwright. I doubt any cricket writer back then looked at his record as deeply as I just did. Not just because they weren't interested or didn't have their own suspicions, but because it was harder to do back then and it wasn't their job. Now you can use Stats Guru on Crick Info, Cricket Archive for First Class, or also use Andrew Sampson or Rick Finlay's Stats Package. Or you can download the data from Crick Sheets. It took me 15 minutes to find out all that information on Kara. Now, I know where to look and I've trained myself in what to look for, but the truth is, This is part of modern cricket writing, and it was not the world that Dolavira lived in. At the beginning of my career, I met with a very well-known cricket writer of his era, and my first question was, what did you write about Dolavira? And he admitted that he was on the wrong side of history, but he believed his sources, and he went with the establishment line that this decision was made for cricket reasons. And he wasn't on his own. Even in undoubtedly the best book that will probably ever be written on this, Peter Oborn's book, Basil Dolivera, Cricket and Controversy, he says that if you judge this as a cricket decision on its own, it was not an outrage. I can see where Oborn is going with this. On a basic level, I think three or four times a year a test team will make a call like this. When you factor in Fletcher's age, Cartwright's better bowling, and Dolivera's non-test form and his lack of penetration with the ball, it was probably not the worst selection that England had made. But there are some off parts here. If Dolavira wasn't an all-rounder, why had the captain requested him because of his bowling for the previous test? Also, why had he bowled 35 overs in the first test of the summer? This sounds like they were trying to come up with a metric that Dolavira would fail. Now, was he an all-rounder? He certainly wasn't Ian Botham or Ben Stokes. But if you were to compare him to a modern player, I'd say late career Shane Watson would be a good fit. Watson was a top six batsman who was really hard to score off and in certain conditions could take wickets, but a lot of things needed to be in his favour. It would definitely be hard to say that Dolavira or Watson didn't have all-round skills. They may not have taken many wickets, but in Dolavira's case, he did bowl 26 overs per match and his economy was under two. In comparison, Dax Callis bowled 20 overs a match. It's Dolavira bowling to Lily. He's out caught. That's Alp. Maybe before we get Dolivera claims the first victim for England. He's out. Wow, there we are. There's the first wicket. Dolivera has got it. And he's done it again. A thick inside edge and Chapel is out. A little bit of fat probably there for Basil Dolivera. But we're already focusing on the wrong thing here. You could argue the point about his bowling being that he was averaging 49 with the ball at this point in his career. Maybe the selectors had seen enough and they believed he wasn't a bowler. I could see how this could be made on cricket logic. As Oborn would say, not an outrage. But there is a huge clue that this is all nonsense and the decision was politically motivated. Remember the last episode when we talked about the fact that Dolavira wasn't in the 30 players contracted to see if they were free to travel to South Africa? He had made 87 not out in his last test knock. And when that list of 30 was made, he averaged 44 in test cricket and could bowl a little bit, tiny bit. He could bowl enough. In these situations, everyone wants the smoking gun. Some old guy finally coming out to say, yeah, we did it because of the politics. Enough people in English cricket knew that selecting Dolavira meant the tour was off. And that's why he wasn't in that 30-man group to start with. It's not a smoking gun. It's just kind of obvious. 
And when it came down to not picking him for that final squad, they could talk about him not being a bowler anymore or how he'd failed in county cricket or in his last year of the West Indies or even all that drinking or everything else. But by the time they sat in Lords and all tried not to mention politics, he averaged even more with the bat. He had made 87 not out and 158 in two of his last three test innings. And he had just been used as a bowler as well. And they went in with an untried player who had failed in his only test and a bowler who was not suited to South Africa, who wasn't any more of an all-rounder than Dolavira, actually was far less of an all-rounder. But without Dolavira in the squad, the tour would go on. Certain newspapers even backed the decision, not oddly, E.W. Swanton, and not obviously Leary Constantine. And then Tom Cartwright made it all weirder. He pulled out of the tour. Now, there is no one certain reason he pulled out, but let's start with the injury. Cartwright had already missed nine of Warwickshire's last 10 matches, and he did have a fitness test, and maybe even two, and Cartwright passed both of them, or maybe even one, and then pulled out anyway. There has been other parts of the story as well, that his son didn't want him to travel for months away from home, Oh, and he was also worried about the reaction that the South African government had when Dolavira wasn't selected. But either way, he was out. And apparently after a 10-minute conversation, the man who wasn't in that 30-man list, the non-all-rounder, the non-bowler, was now replacing a bowler in the squad to tour South Africa. And just like that, cricket got weirder again. Oborn believes they had had enough and were bowing to public opinion. But maybe they just ran out of energy or fight or excuses. But now Dolavira was in to tour South Africa, which essentially meant that there was no tour of South Africa. Gibbs comes in, bows to Dolavira, and he's played around the corner, and they're taking it. England have won. England have won a memorable victory. That was made official by South African PM BJ Vorster, who told a rally of fellow racists, we are and always have been prepared to play host to the MCC. We are not prepared to receive them thrust upon us by people whose interests are not the game, but to gain certain political objectives which they do not attempt to hide. This was clearly a stupid statement, as Vorster would have said this while having full knowledge, perhaps even an eyewitness account from a spy of Delavira's 100 at the end of season for Worcestershire, not to mention the Test 100 as well. The narrative today is that Basil Delavira's omission and then inclusion changed everything. This is Mike Proctor. If 44 million people's lives were improved by us not playing cricket for 22 years, then it was worth it. But Australia toured South Africa the following summer. And when South African tours were stopped, rest of the world 11s played in England and Australia with South African cricketers in them. They even tried to stage a Women's World Cup in South Africa in the late 1970s. South Africa weren't so much as banned from cricket. Their tours just kind of dried up. But that had already kind of started to happen. After 1965, South Africa only played Australia twice, beating them 7-1 in two home series. Many people look to that and think about what kind of a team we missed out on. But that's obviously overlooking something else. Think of all the cricketers that were missing just because of their skin colour. We even missed the best of Basil Dolavira. He once said of his time in South Africa, I was some player then. I was over the hill when I came to England. This year, I went to the Wanderers to watch England play South Africa. And it was Temba Bavuma's first came back after injury and bad form had meant that he missed out on the rest of the series. I first went to the Wanderers in 2003. 17 years on, I could barely recognize the place. Not the ground. That was pretty much as I remembered. But the crowd. So many women. So many young people. Two things you don't see a lot in test matches anywhere. But also, so many of the people had different ethnic backgrounds. All mixed up. Hanging out. Loving the sport. It felt like a celebration of test cricket. Bavuma is seen by many as a quota player, someone not good enough, pushed ahead of his time. But in that you miss some things. 
The reason these pleas aren't good enough is often because they've missed out on the 100 years of cricket development. Cricket is a sport that is passed down through generations. There are many shibboleths and much inside knowledge that you just can't learn on your own. When Afghanistan were at the 2015 World Cup, the team was learning about cross-seam bowling from their coach. I learned about that as a kid. The quota system isn't perfect and doesn't fix the major underlying problem that kids outside the posh school systems of South Africa aren't being raised in the environment of cricket, to quote from WG Grace. And this isn't just black cricketers. South Africa's women's cricket lag behind the women's game in Australia, England, and New Zealand. And in many parts of the world, there is a class divide when it comes to cricket. Cricket is lucky that so many people involved have fought on to keep the flames burning as bright as they can, often in the darkness. And so while we know the names of Crom Hendricks and Basil Dolavira, there are many that we don't know the name of. But they all paved the way for Omar Henry, Makai Antini, Paul Adams, Ashwell Prince, Imran Tahir, Hashim Amla, Kegisa Rabada, or Vernon Philander, or the many others that I haven't mentioned. Oh, and Temba Bavuma, the battling middle-order batsman, who while he batted in that test, a group called the Guijo Squad chanted, keep it going, keep it flowing, like the water. Loosely translated, this means, this is Temba, for those who know. It was one of the greatest days I've ever been in a stadium for, and I'm just a white cricket writer from Melbourne. What would every run, (laughs) even every player miss, from Bavuma mean to a 60-year-old black South African cricket fan. Maybe they played a bit of cricket themselves, but against people who only looked like them. And now Bavuma is doing what they never even dreamed of. That chanting was for Crom Hendricks and for all the guys and ladies that we don't even have any information on. Cricket has not been a sport for everyone, and it isn't yet. But in that crowd when they were singing, I thought it could be. And it made me think of Basil Dolavira. He got to play cricket around the world at the very highest level. But you know what he didn't get? Was his own cricket fans chanting for him in an integrated crowd while he wore the badge of his birth. Bavuma made only six, and it wasn't 87 not out or 158. But sometimes the score doesn't matter. It didn't for Dolly, and it doesn't now. What matters is that everyone gets a chance to bat. And we're not there yet, in South Africa or anywhere. But when you watch Bavuma in Johannesburg, and the crowd is singing, it's a reminder of where we can go. Bavuma's not outside the ground. He's not in a section of the sand called the cage. He's out in the middle, batting for his country. A young black child coming to watch a cricket game in South Africa now can not only support his team, but see someone like them playing it. And now Bavuma is doing what they never even dreamed about. While someone sings, this is Temba, for those who know. Thank you for listening to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, any way that you can share it really helps us. We are an independent production. And if you want to help support us more, we have a Patreon in the show notes. And a huge thank you to those who already donate to us. Double Century is a team effort. Nick McCorriston is our producer and editor. 
Abhishek Mukherjee and Bertie Moores are our fact checkers, and the series is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Thank you for listening. If you are listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy my other show, Red Inca. It's a podcast about stories and issues in cricket, told by the experts who have followed it or the people who've lived them. We've had Dan Norcross talking about cricket commentary, Wright Thompson on his Sachin Tendulkar piece, and a bunch of cricketers like Andrew Balburnie, Tamal Mill, Sean Massoud, and Alex Hartley. It's a weekly podcast with a different theme for every show. Sports Social Podcast Network.